but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. We're here to recap Indian Wells' Taylor's version. <laughs> welcome to Tennis Paradise. I would say purgatory at best. Have you gotten it all out of your system? <laughs> because I can assure the listeners that I have had it up to here with you complaining about this tournament these past two weeks. And it's not that there isn't reason to complain. But it's just one of your absolute favorite topics. Mm -hmm. And I understand, you know, nobody wants to listen to that. So I'm not going to drone on and on on the podcast about it. You all know, if you've listened, that it's not, maybe not my favorite tournament on the calendar. It's eight years now of you banging on this drum. Eight years just recorded. What do you mean? Think of the time before that. Oh my god. <laughs> From 2001 to 2014. Yes, and historically, we don't need to remind you of the many ways and the many incidents over the years why this tournament has lived up to your billing. Yeah, well, we we will later in the yeah, episode. To provide some context to other things <laughs> that threatened their Paradise label yeah. this year. I will say, I... I was uh, more engaged in Indian Wells than usual. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that had to do with Rafa, you know, extending his win streak, some exciting things going on in the men's draw in general, which, let me tell you, Such as? surprised me. Such as? I mean, maybe not exciting for me, but Taylor Fritz reaching a Masters final and winning his first is a big deal for fans of American tennis. Oh. <laughs> it is. And that kept you engaged these two weeks. No, I'm trying. I feel like you're blowing a lot of hot air right I'm now. I'm <laughs> trying to be fair, okay? Anyway, enough, enough about that. Let us talk about the actual tournament. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the women. All right. There was a brief time in Iga Swiatek's career where she wasn't a hardcore player, or wasn't seen as a superstar on the surface. That time has passed. Keep in mind, she's twenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she has five titles already. Taylor Swift is 24 and has two. Taylor Fritz. Fritz, Taylor yes. Harry Fritz. You know, you come from old American money if your middle name is Harry. He, uh, he's always given me Coach Taylor tease. Like he is... Like Friday Night Lights? Yeah, like he's Coach Taylor's son. <laughs> But Ika, we hear folks complain all the time about, oh my god, so many different women winning on the WTA Tour. They have one or cute titles here, and then nobody's able to accumulate. Well, Ika Sviantek, according to WTA insider Courtney Nguyen, is the first WTA player since 2009 in Caroline Wozniacki to win this many titles at this age. Yes. And these are big titles. She's won both 
WTA 1000 events this year, winning Doha a few weeks ago, and now winning in emphatic fashion in Indian Wells. But she does this, though. When she plays well and when she wins titles, she tends to beat down her opponents. She tends to obliterate. Right. Madison Keys gets another great result, getting the quarterfinals, and gets one game against Iga. But you mentioned that stat from WTA Insider. She's one of the few active players who have won five titles before their 21st birthday. Naomi Osaka, for example, has four majors, but is not one of those players who did that. You have to look back to Kim, Venus and Serena, and then before them, or, you know, retired players, Hingis, Ivanovic, I believe. These are huge names, right? And Iga is placing herself kind of in that category, or or she'll get there soon. She's got to win a few more majors first. Sure, but she's not one of these one-hit wonders. No. And she's creating a bit of separation between herself and some of the other players who maybe have had similar success, but it's kind of difficult sometimes to to decipher whose pedigree is bigger, whose ceiling is higher. Mm-hmm. You know, like, not yeah. everybody wins 15 titles in a year anymore. That doesn't happen on the WTA right. Tour. So when four or five players win three to four tournaments, who are the ones who are really, well, this is the, the cream of the crop. Right. And in narrow terms, there's, there is kind of an eye test, like, who deserves number two? The number two ranking, right? Because Maria Sakkari was very close to getting the number two ranking at this tournament. It was possible for a number of players. I don't think the, you know, the fan and commentary world would have looked the same on her reaching number two. You know, it's deserved if you get the numbers. But Iga feels like a different level to me. Okay, I'm I'm sure you could go back to the early stages and the early years of this podcast and find me saying things that would be contrary to what I'm saying now. But I would have been <laughs> totally fine with Maria Sakkari being number two because there has been no more consistent player on the WTA Tour than her yeah. over the last two years. We're talking about somebody who made eight semifinals last year, two semis at slams. She's now made three semis minimum this year. She hasn't won the title. She's also somebody who... I think the stat I heard them say on TV was she's lost 15 of her 19 career semifinals yeah. before Indian Wells. That's a lot of losing at the semifinal stage. Mm-hmm. But if, it's also a lot of semifinals. Right? right. Like, it, as you always say, she has incredible consistency. She's doing something that almost nobody is doing on the WTA, even if she's not getting to finals and winning them. But... Look at her performance in this semifinal. It felt like, in the same way that it felt like kind of a new Taylor Fritz and a new Carlos Alcaraz, it felt like a new Maria Sakkari. Well, Carlos Alcaraz is just new, period. Right, right. But she came into that semi against the defending champion, Paula Badosa, one in three sets, and it, it felt like a real turning point for her. You could tell in her response after winning the match. She was very emotional. The response was twofold. One, getting over maybe that semifinal hurdle, that bugaboo. And two, the collateral damage of all those losses before. 
mm. being able to look at this as a triumph, as a real step forward. It didn't translate into the final, and that doesn't mean that the progress didn't happen. It just means she ran into a freight train. And that mm. train is always going full steam in finals, it seems, with Iga Shriantek. And if you look at her as a primarily dominant clay player, this is the surface on hard courts. This is the hard court surface that would be most akin to a clay court. Right. The final, you know, the final wasn't great. And Iga didn't start great. Neither of them served well. After about six games, neither of them were even winning 50% of their first or second serves. Uh, But this is the test of someone like Iga. Can she get her head in the game, deal with the windy conditions, kind of remember who she is, and get over it? Right? And that's what she did so much better than Maria. She's been here before. She has a lot more experience. And she's just a player who can turn on the power and overwhelm her opponent. It's easy for us to sit here and say for her to remember who she is because mm-hmm. Again, she's, she's only 20 and and what that means is that she's still figuring out who she is and what she can do a lot of these experiences are still new for her and it isn't the same as serena williams in her heyday being able to call upon past experiences in a match and be like no 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 i'm this is untenable i am going to now flip a switch and wipe this person off the court you know, a lot right, of this stuff right. is still surprising Ega, and that's part of what makes a rise like this so exciting to watch. Mm-hmm. A bit more on Sakari. I enjoy the fact that she is still on this journey with Tom Hill. She probably has one of the longest standing coaching pupil relationships going on tour. Mm-hmm. They seem to still really enjoy each other's company. And their dynamic. And I like that they're staying the course and still able to push further and see results. Because a lot of times what you see is, okay, I made eight semifinals last year. I haven't broken through. While it may not necessarily be your fault, Mr. Coachman, (laughs) I'm going to try something different. Yes, a lot of times on the WTA, like if a player feels that they're stagnating, the the easiest thing is to switch out the coach. It's not always the answer, but we see that quite a bit. Simona Halep had a great showing at this tournament. And in the semifinal against Iga Shiontek, much has, has been said already, but she did kind of play a better set. And in tennis, that doesn't necessarily matter because Iga played some key points <laughs> better than Simona. But she, like competitively, she was really into this match she was extremely pissed off that she lost the first set Mm -hmm. and you know i will eat crow once again i just i didn't expect simona to kind of return to this level that was a preemptive strike because i know where i know where your words out of my mouth are how long do i get to regurgitate this on the podcast to be able to hold your feet to this fire that you thought that Simona Halep was on the downside of her career. If you're a Simona fan, this tournament has to be very encouraging. Beating Kirstea 6-1-6-4, taking out Mardich with the loss of two games, and stacking up against Iga this well. She is still that girl. 
you know <laughs> the one who's going to chase down every ball who can still chase down every ball who can still create power redirect with power still has the desire to do what she needs to do on a tennis court to be successful because that takes a lot of effort mm-hmm. it's kind of shocking to see her ranking this low i think she was seated like 24 in indian wells but i think she's going to take that ranking higher over the next few months as we get to clay. There are a lot of players that it's shocking to see their well, ranking this I mean, low on the WTA tour. There's right only now. so much room, right? Like mm. the top 20 is really stacked and it's really close. The top 50. That said, the top 10 is where it's at because we're now seeing the players who have been the most consistent over the last year, their ranking reflects their performance it's so top heavy now mm-hmm. there was a lot more parity in terms of being able to have one really breakout performance and jump a, a bunch of spots now the top five six players in the world they've got a lot of points in their bag like they can they can coast for a little bit if they need to and rest on those laurels of their performances of the last year mm-hmm. But between ranking numbers 3 and 8, there's less than 900 points Mm -hmm. between them, right? There's a lot of noise that can be made in Miami. There were three or four players who, at the beginning of Indian Wells, could have reached number Mm -hmm. 2. The final was a battle for number 2. Yeah. Ash Barty is still number 1 with some distance. The Miami points, if you take them off, she's still up, you know, over 1,000 points. But... That gets closer and closer, depending how the numbers two through five play over the next few weeks and months. Right, and then she has to defend her Wimbledon points in the middle of the year. So mm. it it's possible that we could be looking at a new number one at some point in the summer this year. Say what you want about the instability in the WTA. There has been uh, incredible stability at the number one spot since the beginning of COVID. I've seen so many more people now jump on the Ash Barty bandwagon, <laughs> begrudgingly, I would say. Yes, it's like a, It's like, a, well, I have to respect this. I think back to all the things I've said over the last 10 years, and I guess an anti-Barty position right now is a bit untenable. Well, when they saw that Krejcikova was within a breath of the number one ranking, Ooh. they were like, oh, you know what? Ashley, come back, girl. I'm good. <laughs> and this is not to slander Miss Krejcikova. No, but it, again, it's speaking to like what fans uh, can stomach. And uh, largely the fans on Tennis Twitter, di- it didn't seem that they could stomach uh, Krejcikova number one. Mm-hmm. The same way that they don't want to see Sakari at number two. There's a lot of there's a lot of Sakari hate out there. There is no, but it's yeah. two different things. The Sakari hate is because she doesn't win. <laughs> That's what it is. Sure. Okay. Babs wins. Caroline Wojnicki was a longtime number one player with a lot of wins, but the yes. knock was not a grand slam. Right, not the biggest ones. But she We're had a talking bunch about, of titles. It's not crazy for Maria Sakari to become number one without winning any titles. Mm-hmm. Like, that in itself is a remarkable achievement, to be able to do that. But it's, but, a, it's a little much. I'm saying that's why that would be untenable right, to some right. folks. But then it's kind of a, like a slippery slope into, well, mm, she's a choker. I can't stand a choker. Mm. 
but the Krejcikova thing is there's a bit of a mistrust, I feel. A mistrust in her <laughs> on-court tactics. Mm-hmm. There's a mistrust of her wearing just one kit mm-hmm. through all her success. The like, structural integrity of that necklace. <laughs> there's a mistrust in that. There is a mistrust in the newness no matter how successful she's been across both disciplines, singles and doubles, it's mm. like, well, you just kind of burst on the scene. Like, I'm yeah. not ready to, I'm not ready to attend that coronation just yet. Yeah, for many people, her singles career feels like a year old. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the point anyway. is, the perspective on Ash Barty now is a bit different because I think people, for better or worse, have made their peace with who she is, how she does it. And her success. Right. Paula Belosa was a surprise winner in Indian Wells last October against Victoria Azarenka. She reached the semifinals here, came close, you know, did an admirable job defending her points. And those Indian Wells points, they're actually going to be two events counting toward the ranking at the same time. Because, you know, at first I was like, ugh. But there was a... There it makes were, sense. Several events missed on the calendar on both the men's and women's. There was a master's event missed in the fall. So it does make sense. So she gets to have championship points from last fall as well as semifinal points on her ranking until October. Yeah. At which point the 1,000 points will fall off and then she'll just hold the semifinal points from this year. Mm -hmm. Kem Nori almost did the same thing. Let's talk about the men's side. The Like the women's, the final didn't really give everything it was supposed to give. The semifinals were really where it's at, right? Rafa's semi against Alcaraz. Well, the one semifinal. The court, well, sure. The quarterfinal against Kyrgios for different reasons. <laughs> Those were the more exciting matches. But Taylor Fritz winning his first Masters 1000 final from his first final appearance, it's a big deal. Especially after going through that surgery last year, recovering within a few weeks to play Wimbledon. Coming into this final injured, his coach Paul Anacone reportedly advised him not to play the final because he turned his ankle. Was that before or after he was interviewing Rafa, his would-be opponent? Was that before or after he was commentating for Fritz final himself? Uh, right. Our... Are these conflicts of interest even worth getting mad about? There's Because they're so blatant and so absurd that at this point, I can just laugh at it. Taylor Fritz has chosen an impeccable time to have this result. Because he signed on to do that Netflix mm-hmm. docuseries. Mm-hmm. I hate, can I say I just, I hate this thing? I hate everything You're inclined about to hate everything? I hope it fails. You're inclined to hate everything that's new to begin with. Do you know what? You've even told me that you refuse to cover this on the show when it comes out. And I told you, matter-of-factly, get your head right. Can can we pirate it? Because I don't even really want to give it a click. You can do whatever you want. (laughs) They, Netflix canceled Babysitter's Club, despite being successful. They canceled one day at a time, but we're going to have to deal with this bullshit. Anyway, I'm not, I swear I'm not that sour most of the time. (laughs) <laughs> the thing is, okay, of course I will watch the, the tennis oh, docuseries. that's on, on the record Because now. I have no choice. But it's not for tennis people, 
Right. Like, tennis people will watch it, but it's not for us. Sure, but I think you have to go into it knowing its limitations mm-hmm. and your own agenda. So for me, going into that, we cover a tennis season on a tennis podcast. I will remember how I viewed it. And I think it'll be interesting to see how it's presented through non-tennis people's perspective, mm-hmm. per se. And how the events that we covered in one way may be covered in another way. Right. And there's discourse that can be had about that for various reasons. I mean, getting a behind-the-scenes view of pro tennis is fascinating. And I hope that more fans get to see that. But I just, I'm not entirely trusting of, like, what we're going to see and how realistic it is. Oh, for sure, there's going to be a lot of trash. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of trash. A lot of hopped-up drama. Myths. Untruths, <laughs> misrepresentations. But what we're seeing to now, because of the knowledge of this thing happening, is when we find out that things are happening in real time, there are a lot of folks who now have a tendency to question the authenticity of those things because they're wondering is this just for show? Course, is this yeah. just trumped up stuff for Netflix? Right. For example, for example, for example, when Taylor Fritz seems to injure himself at the end of his semifinal against Andre Rublev, he shows up the next day to practice ahead of the final, and we get word from a bunch of people on site that, oh no, Taylor Fritz has had to cut short his practice because it seems like the ankle is a really big issue. Mm-hmm. And when he shows up to the final, and he's playing like somebody who is more unencumbered than injured, folks are like, okay, yeah. Oh, we we know fake, what right? was going on with that. This is for Netflix. This is and a narrative for him to overcome the challenges to be this crowning achievement of his career, and it can be captured by the Netflix crew. <laughs> right. And somehow, I, I trust that somehow they will make this final interesting. It was not. It was horrible. Um, but... I'm in no way questioning Taylor's injury. I, he, his ankle was injured. Mm. And this happens a lot. Like, players get taped, they take some anti-inflammatories, and they get through matches. Like, it's, it's not a big deal. You can read it skeptically or cynically if you want. And sure, maybe Netflix said, uh, let's, let's make sure we film him cutting short his warm-up. Let's make sure we film another warm-up. That's better and more encouraging. Sure, like, they'll make it seem dramatic on the show. But yeah, he was injured. Right. There's also this idea that's finally breaking through, I think, where if somebody's struggling on court during a match and they take a medical timeout and then they start to play better, instead of saying, oh, yeah, they're faking it, it's now, well, yeah, that's what the timeout's supposed to do, right? (laughs) Address the issue, and then they're they're able to be better afterward. By the same token, it's not a stretch to think if Taylor Fritz were injured before this match, he sought treatment, and then he played better. Right. And if you watched the match, you could tell that both players were not at their optimal level. Rafa was clearly struggling. Taylor was struggling. I just... Like, if you're going to question somebody's injury, then you've got to question all of them. Mm-hmm. If you're going to say Rafa was faking it and he's playing it up because he was about to lose, what about Rafa's level would 
tell you that he was resigned to losing to Taylor Fritz. Do you, like, do you know what I mean? But didn't that, you That's know? not to say that, like, the title is earned, right? Taylor won that title, fair and square. I'm just saying, why would a 21-time Grand Slam champion have to make up an injury? Because he wouldn't even hit the autographed balls after his semifinal. He kicked them. Yeah, well, that was the telltale sign. Yeah, I said that to you after yes. that. I said, look, he's kicking the balls. He's not even hitting them. <laughs> that is not good. That's no. a telltale sign. No. But didn't you know that Rafa only talks about injuries when he's losing or when he's lost? Right, right. That it's always an excuse with Rafa? Yeah, I mean, there were MPHs off of his serve. A you lot of tell, MPHs. You could tell this. And, and the match on both sides of the net. It was just not really that great. Mm. It was not that interesting. Clearly, both players were just not at in the tip-top fighting shape. And it was a shame because, you know, this is Taylor's first shot here. This is Rafa's win streak. Both of them want to be 100%. And, I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, Taylor won the title. He's You're going to be happy regardless. It just wasn't that great of a match. What I dislike about this result is that we are well and truly entering an era where those who are interested in American men's tennis, those who want to see a revival, those who think that it's necessary to the survival of the sport somehow for American men to be doing well, that this is going to be a catalyst for that narrative to be insufferable going forward. (laughs) Yes, but... um... I read something recently that during the 90s when we had a bunch of American men at the top of the game, Sambras, Agassi, Chang, Courier, it didn't actually spur like a similar increase in interest in youth tennis and ratings and all those things, not as much as you would expect. The thing is, Americans don't know anything about tennis. Even when there are Americans winning at the highest level, it is of like a third tier sport. It's never getting above, you know, 7th or 8th on the ESPN, the ESPN banner. You can even go to tennis tournaments, and fans at tennis tournaments don't know the Americans. Yes. So it's a myth, is what you're saying. No, I'm saying that Tennis Channel and ESPN is going to harp on and on about American players, but that doesn't mean that the population at large knows anything or even cares that Americans are doing well. Yeah, so the idea that it's meaningful is a myth. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I think more than ever, we're in this post-national world where tennis fans like anybody, whoever they want to like. And it's not really tied to geography. Also, we know that the biggest hurdle to the development and the thriving of tennis is the fact that nobody can watch it. You have an entire channel called... The tennis channel, and oftentimes you can't watch live tennis. Or you've paid for TC Plus, but the match is not on Plus. It's on the cable version of Tennis Channel. And I mean, I don't know. We're in Canada, we're lucky because it is actually pretty easy to find live tennis. And we pirate stuff, to be honest. That's patently false. <laughs> um, no, but we pay for TSN. Mm-hmm. You know, you can watch a ton of live tennis on the app, whatever, because we don't have cable anymore. But in the U.S., it seems like y'all are having a lot of problems finding tennis. Right. So when people say that 
tennis is struggling in America because we don't have tennis stars. No. Well, is it the chicken or the egg? No, the issue is, is America and many countries and societies in the world are entirely patriarchal and sexist. You had two of the biggest sporting stars in the history of all sport for the last 25 years, and that didn't move the needle. Why was that? Mm. Well, this is a different thing, too. Yes, you're right. And then I'm also going to say that it has to do with not being able to find it on TV, not being able to watch it, and not being able to watch it consistently. Yeah. Because tennis is a year-long sport. You travel from tournament to tournament, continent to continent. You can tell a story. Mm -hmm. You can tell a theme of one person's performance through an entire year. But that can never be told if it's so stilted and and uh, interrupted, yeah. right? But can you turn on CBS and find tennis? You know, you're watching TV on a Sunday. Are you going to flip through and find it like you would golf, right? Golf is always on. Mm. This is a challenge for tennis is getting that kind of placement. And there was a time, like in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s, yeah. you would be able to watch tennis on a network, a broadcast network. CBS on the weekend, right. ESPN throughout the week. Exactly. I, I watched the RCA so many times and on you'd hear, ESPN. And you'd hear Bud Collins' voice. Like, that is a big thing of what we're missing. Uh, an ambassador, at least in the U.S., like Bud Collins. Everybody, even people outside of tennis knew him, right? Um, the sport is having trouble like getting that pop culture cachet. This is a, a long tangent. Anyway, the whole point yeah. of it was when folks tell you that this rise in American tennis is going to mean something, take it with a grain of salt. But I will say, I mean, I don't I don't have a horse in this race. I, I don't care either way. But it is exciting that the American men's tennis generation that's coming up has a lot more variety in their games. It's not the serve and forehand generation that we're used to. I there, mean, there are players who excel on clay. There are different types of games. There's Brooksby, you know, if you're into that. Brooksby and Cressy. They're Corda. them. Corda. Okay. No, it's it's different. Mm, I'm not really ready to buy that just yet. There's Brooksby and there's Cressy, and then there's a whole lot of similarity otherwise. All right. What I will say is that I am pleased that somebody whose name is the same as the sport, but with one letter different, mm -hmm. will not stop losing. And this is an incredible development. Losing today mm -hmm. in Miami qualifying, like well into the hundreds now. This precipitous fall has been long in the making, long in my wanting, and it's here. Mm -hmm. It's a welcome development because we did get a Cisner. Uh, Isnock doubles title here. A Schooner? A shoe. <laughs> Jack Shoe? <laughs> anyway, that's all we're going to give to men's doubles at this tournament. Getting back to men's singles, Nadal Alcaraz was the, really, the marquee match of the, the last half of this tournament. This was uh, supposed to be a torch-passing moment. Let, so let's get this out of the way. Carlos is the real deal, or he appears to be. Mm -hmm. He competes incredibly well. He, I mean, the power and the hustle and even the volleying that he has, like he's got a lot going for him. The hyperbole is a little bit much. And I always caution with younger players, like 
just let them live, right? Just let them develop, celebrate what they do well, and just chill. I saw someone try to add him to a list of the best returners in history. We have a sample size problem here. He's 18. Okay, he may be there at one point, but like, everybody just chill. He could develop the yips next week. Right, like just enjoy, observe what's happening. We've been, the, pro- we've been promised yeah. so many next great talents that haven't developed. And I, I mean, if you're looking at his performance against Rafa, that is a, an amazing sign that he's the real deal. But like, just cool your jets for a minute. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's done a lot of firsts already. Mm-hmm. He's done a lot of, well, he's the youngest since. Right. And those senses are big senses. They're compared, mostly Rafa. Yeah, compared to big names. <laughs> yeah. The ATP doesn't have a lot of prodigies anymore. A part of it is the way that boys and men's bodies develop. But mm. it takes a lot more than just physical strength and physical development to develop into a top ATP player. <laughs> yes. And a lot of those et cetera's, he seems to be on his way already. Mm-hmm. Some of his defending on court, elite, elite, calls yep. to mind Djokovic. The nimbleness, the flexibility, uh, the being able to put not just one more ball in play, but multiple more balls in play in the same point. Mm-hmm. That stuff is not usual or typical for somebody of his age on the ATP tour these days, right? right? I really enjoy his willingness to come to net and defend at net. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were, I mean, there were a few points against Rafa that were simply breathtaking. There was one I can recall that I cannot even believe he made it to net to hit this little stab shoelace volley that dropped dead on the other side. Um, just the hustle was remarkable. The thing that stood out to me most in this match was how he adapted to the windy conditions. In that second set, pretty much the entire second set was played in a windstorm. Mm -hmm. Only sheltered by the massive structure of center court. Outside the stadium was like a meteorological event. (laughs) You're laughing because... It was a struggle to get that word out. It'll be edited out, but it took like at least six or seven times and I still didn't quite get it right. (laughs) It was not great inside the stadium either. The second set was not enjoyable to watch it wasn't enjoyable for either of the players but surprisingly rafa was not the player more adapted Mm -hmm. to the wind we've seen and we've been told over the years that rafa is one of the best wind players right and so conventional wisdom had it that being up a set this would definitely be to rafa's advantage as it turned out alcaraz shows great adaptability he went almost exclusively to chip returns. He wasn't going full out on the returns, just trying to get the ball back in play. And he had a lot of success with it. I was blown away by that part of it. And you mm-hmm. said that the set wasn't enjoyable. It wasn't. It was stressful. But also there was some intrigue and frankly some enjoyment for me watching these two players try and navigate this situation. Yeah, yeah, but I I kind of felt the frustration. It it just at one point it was like, are they gonna call this match? The conditions seem so crazy that you would think 
one of them would risk getting hurt trying mm-hmm. to adjust to a ball or sort of lunge to a ball if they're out of position to hit. But it's it's not make a mountain out of a molehill. It, it happened. The wind calmed down a little bit in the third set, and the match really could have gone either way until the very end. Right. Right? Like, even... It, I think it was that for-all game, Alcaraz missed one important point, and then it was kind of done after that. He still has work to do on a lot of facets of his game. He's a bit too inclined to go all out from the ground. Mm-hmm. Like, he... the the. <laughs> The match was entirely on his racket through the first half of the first set. But when you start missing, then it becomes a problem. And even though the match was on his racket to start the match, he was still giving Rafa so many break chances. Rafa had 17 break chances in the first set. <laughs> yeah. 17. He converted two of them. Mm-hmm. But Carlos also broke. Right, but Carlos's service games were a struggle in mm-hmm. the first set. And... The comparison is often made to Nadal, saying that he is the heir to the Spanish throne. But to my mind, there's way more Djokovic in his game than either of Nadal or Federer. And with that Mm -hmm. comparison in mind, consider too that Djokovic also struggled a lot with his serve earlier on in his career. So when you're looking at Alcaraz and his development and what's to come, the thing that could really set him apart is if he develops a lethal elite serve Mm -hmm. and sorry correction rafa broke three times in the first set alcaraz broke twice but that was a hundred percent success rate for Mm -hmm. alcaraz i also like that alcaraz appeared happy to be there and that Mm. manifested in not being perturbed by the conditions not being awed by the opponent just showing up and showing out A lot of veteran players would have been pissed and rattled by those conditions. Mm -hmm. I mean, even Rafa, who is pretty even-keeled on court, is kind of pissed about the conditions. Mm. Like, he he knew he wasn't handling it as well as maybe he should have or he has in the past. He was not happy. It reminded me of that semifinal against Federer at Roland Garros. I mean, that, like, dust storm, right? Which is one of the matches that gives Rafa the reputation of being mm-hmm. kind of the master of playing in the wind. Alcaraz is into the top 16. Taylor Fritz is number 13. Rafa Nadal gets to 20 wins in a row. The streak is ended in the final. But he is back up to number 3 in the world, supplanting... Mm-hmm. That guy. That guy. We've entered the portion of the podcast where you may be hearing some Vince snoring. Vince is currently on some medication to manage his extreme anxiety and uh, it doesn't make him less anxious but it does kind of fuck him up (laughs) it's a work in progress (laughs) anyway the the tournament it feels like had been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks and it felt a little bit sleepy until the first few days yeah and The thing is, like, the first few days are qualifying, those early matches. You don't always see a lot of great matchups early on because it's such a big draw. And then on the first Saturday, that's when it really springs to life. Yeah. Because that's that all in that one day, Rafa comes back from 2-5 down in the third set in his first match to beat Korda, 
On that same day, Amanda Nisimova flees the court after losing the first set, despite Cherempire pleading for her to just, you know, just stick around for a little bit. Let's see if we can figure this out. And she was like, she, uh-uh. She dismissed herself. Uh, and the Naomi Osaka debacle. Nick Kyrgios, after winning doubles at the Australian Open, comes here and says that he basically has a new lease on life. He has a new girlfriend, and uh, basically the love of a good woman changed him. Mm. There's a bit of skepticism in my voice, because uh, I never liked that line of thinking, because women don't exist to cure men or to coach them into being better people. Women are people. To fix them for the next one, to reap the rewards. Because I necessarily means that like the previous women were just not good enough or not the right woman or or bad for him this girlfriend has changed his entire outlook on life and if that's true that's great but like sometimes those things need to come from within and you need to just let women be human beings on their own Mm -hmm. and frankly if that's what you're claiming it was not borne out on court so there's that Mm -hmm. so I don't think we're going to do a, like a whole discourse on Nick because we've we've been there over the years. The good things. He won three matches in singles here. Then he got a walkover versus Sinner. And he played a very good match against Rafa. Reaching the quarterfinals in singles was not too far away from beating Rafa and reaching the semifinals. The, the demeanor and the personality didn't feel too different though. Right? There was a lot of screaming... There was some childish towel drama. There was berating uh, and belittling of Carlos Bernardes twice. Uh, Carlos Bernardes is simply not the one. There he was is a point always ready. There was a point in that match where he looked at him and cut his eye. He's <laughs> like, not this bullshit again. Like I'm sick and tired of dealing with this shit. That's what that look gave. <laughs> right. So again, you have a player who believes that Rafa is getting preferential treatment from Carlos Bernardes, mm-hmm. of all people, right? Uh, Nick got several code violations, got to the point of point penalty. Carlos was actually quite kind and judicious because he did not raise the temperature and he didn't go to game penalty, right? There were a lot of outbursts, personal attacks, profane language, toward the end of that match that could have raised the level to game penalty. And he didn't go there. So credit to him. Like, he knew what had to be done. But Nick sort of... The thing is, like, he laid the groundwork later in that third set for basically, I've lost. The match wasn't over yet, but he's like, I've lost because you let the crowd yell out between my first and second serve. And at that point, what can an umpire do? That sucks. I agree. That is awful. That person who did that should be removed immediately. Like, there's no question about that. And it's a, it's a huge disadvantage to a player who gets heckled and double faults because of it. But, like, what is what can Carlos do about that if, if he's not being supported by security or the tournament? No, the, the point is that Nick picks his targets. Mm-hmm. He has whatever qualm or issue or angst... And he needs to take it out on somebody. And in this moment, he chose Carlos Bernardes. Again, umpires are not here to be your whipping boys. 
they're not here to be your therapist, despite what Muhammad Layani would want to do. He's tried that approach with curious before. Yeah. They're here to call a game, to do their job. And so whatever verbal, emotional, or physical abuse you're inclined to level at them, that is completely out of pocket, totally unprofessional, should be sanctioned, and it's not. The ATP has now made it clear that you can do whatever you want mm. to the umpires and your punishment will be minimal. An umpire can default you from a match, but what what will happen after that? Like, will the tournament, will the ATP smile upon that? I don't know. In that first set, Kyrgios had the lead. He had that set in the bag almost, let Nadal back in, and then in that tiebreak, he goes down six love. Mm. And that's when he targets somebody in the crowd and cusses at them right before he was about to serve. Point penalty. Down love six. And that gives the set to Nadal. He tanked the, the tiebreak from three love. As soon as he went down love three, it was done. He, right. He didn't really try, right? And then he tanked the final point. It's just like, do what you want, but the constant, like the droning on from tennis TV, from the ATP tour, that this is great for tennis. Are you not entertained? No, I'm no, not entertained. Actually, not. I'm disgusted. No, not really. It's the insistence that we have to like it. Mm-hmm. It's annoying to me. This is a sport that has advertised itself based on bad behavior. You cannot be serious. <laughs> How many times have we seen that McEnroe has made so much money in his post-playing career based on that one catchphrase, right? Mm. And what that really is, is umpire abuse. That's what that was in the moment. Right. And it was and sold like as entertainment. Ready behavior. Sold as entertainment, the to- the tours, tennis, profited from it. And now this is a legacy of that, to my mind. You know who we don't see celebrated for that kind of behavior is anyone with an XX chromosome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like only, really only men are sort of celebrated and seen as entertaining and good for the sport if they act like that. Right, and I don't think it's entertaining either when women do it. Nick has been disadvantaged and he has been discriminated against because of his race, because of his color. And it is hard to separate those things. But at this point, it just feels like Nick is self-defeating. It's not because like you, you also have to just hold people responsible for their behavior and how they treat other people and people that they view as under them. It's not at this point. The point is, this is who he is and who he's always been. There's this desire to talk about Nick Curious in the conditional. Well, what if in the hypothetical? What if he did this? What if he took the game seriously? What if he worked out? What if he paid attention to his physical fitness? What if he got a coach? What if he saw a therapist? What if he did this? What Then, then Nick Curious would be unbeatable. Then he could come close to realizing his talent. This right, is, but there, there's no what if anymore. But there are so many players who never reached their potential, who whose mental game never matched their talent, their right. their prodigious talent, right? I, I don't know why the sport isn't past the funeral stage, like that mourning stage. Because, yeah, he's talented, but, like, why are we still... Because if you attend that funeral, you then have to concede that the antics 
are what they are. They're no longer something that can be fixed. They're no longer something that's just, well, it's one little hurdle in the steeplechase of Nick Kyrus's career. I don't want to be reductive and reduce him to just being this one person, but this is all he's shown us. Mm. So fine, hold out hope for Nick Kyrgios charting a different path, but stop force-feeding us this idea that Nick Kyrgios is going to change, that we should be holding out hope for what if he does this. Like, we're, we're long past that. You know, it's mm. to the detriment of trying to better the sport and to protect umpires and to move past this celebration and idolization of bad behavior from men. No matter how hard he's had it, how what he looks like and where he comes from plays a role in how people target him, that is still a part of who Nikiros is. But y'all don't want to talk about that. Y'all never talk about that. Well, so let's not thing. let's yeah. not pretend that this is not just about you wanting to wanting men to get away with whatever under should, the guise. Maybe they of, should talk about that. They should about Kitty Chiller and how racist she was. We've talked about this on the right? show, and that's part of our fatigue because that's not seeping through the discourse anywhere. Nobody wants to talk about that. So I said there wasn't going to be a whole discourse, but I guess there was. There was, of course, the incident at the end of the match where he chucked his racket across the court. We haven't even talked about that. It bounced. It came close to hitting a ball kid. The kid moved out of the way. And so when he was asked about it in his post-match press conference, he was, I mean... Dismissive. If you're somebody... I am somebody who is extremely sensitive to like condescending mm-hmm. behavior. Really, bro? Really, bro? I had that's what that's, that's ducked, what you got. That's what you got. He said he ducked about fifteen times. That provokes. I understand that I probably have like a different response. That provokes like a visceral response when someone is that nasty and that condescending to another person. Because you're in the wrong. Well, right, and also it's a perfectly valid question. Yeah. Asking Iga Świątek to opine and give her thoughts on the entirety of Polish history in a press conference? Not on. But this was. <laughs> right. Maybe not a relevant question. But this was. And it also speaks to the reason people were booing him as he left the court. Because I know a lot of viewers were confused. Like, why was he being booed? Like, oh, well, he almost took out a ball kid with his racket. And then he says it was a one in a million bounce. He shook the umpire's hand, I mean, turned around whacked the racket near his feet. Fine. He says that. That's accurate. And then the racket careens toward the back of the court where if the ball kid had not seen it, would have been hit. Yes. You can blame the bounce, but what precipitated the bounce? It was the racket leaving a human's hands, right? Was it an act of God? Was it a a windstorm? That blew the racket out of your hand to hit the court? Like, you did this. Right. Your intent, as with Djokovic at the U.S. Open, does not matter. Denis Shapovalov did not intend to hit that umpire in the eyeball with a ball, but it happened. Mm -hmm. And he took responsibility for it. He did that. And so you go into the press and do the most. The most condescending, the most just dismissive, enraging stuff, right? Pretend like it's not a big deal. And then, presumably, when you go see the video of it afterward, you're like, well, damn. 
Let me get that notes app up. Problem solved. In my mid-30s, I'm not that gullible. I mean, I may be stupid, but like, are you really that gullible? They were like, oh my god, what a king. Well, that's part of it too, right? What? It's it's <laughs> this <laughs> insistence that we are so stupid, <laughs> that we are so gullible that we can't see through this, right? It'd be one thing if this is the first time this has right. happened, so, but we've seen this play. No, the challenge is to watch the press conference and then look at the Instagram posts and everything and see if you read it the same way. But also this ball kid, it's it's emotionally predatory. Well, like what is the ball kid supposed to say? Fuck you. Right. <laughs> right. That would never happen. Hey, ball kid. I'm kid. so sorry. Do you want a racket? No, Nick. Fuck you. <laughs> like, like, that's not going to happen. How many 12 year olds are going to say that? Right? The 12-year-old does not have the wherewithal, the emotional development to see what this is. They're getting a racket from Nick Curios. Yeah, they're going to be excited. Mm -hmm. They don't have a full idea of the danger that this man put them in while they were doing their job. And so... A racket that Nick got for free, by the way. Right? Or he actually got... It literally cost him nothing. He got paid to use. But anyway... Literally cost him nothing. (laughs) But we're supposed to look at this wrapped up packed up ribbon with a bow on it moment and think yes king you've done it again yes and at the next tournament we're going to do the exact same thing Mm -hmm. you mentioned anisimova retiring earlier and this was an interesting moment that seems to have kind of dissipated since god it was like a week and a half ago when it happened because amanda shut that shit down she lost some match points during this match against Leila Fernandez, she loses the second set tiebreak, 0-7. to seven, And she simply uh, exunts the court. Like, couldn't get off fast enough. Yeah, I think I misspoke earlier when I said that she played a set and then left. It was, as you described, mm. just she had, now. She'd won the first set, loses the second set in a tiebreak at love. And uh, people are like, uh, what the hell? suggesting that she was pissed about losing match points and everything. She issues a a statement on social media, explains that she was ill, that she was not going to finish the match because of it, and to, quote, keep the negative comments to yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes, ma'am. And that was that. And it had already been an eventful week for Amanda because we found out that the coaching partnership with Darren Cahill ended abruptly. And it wasn't Amanda's choice. And a few days went by and, you know, I thought that this, it really doesn't seem Darren's style. Like, there must be something going on, right? He doesn't just leave a player abruptly like that. And he also released a statement on Instagram kind of explaining what had happened, that things were not quite right with him, that he realized he wasn't going to be able to give Amanda his full self, like his full professional coaching experience, and he bowed out. That quarantining in Australia after the season was tough, that he thought he could, you know, just buck up and show up to the Sunshine Double Swing and maybe just pull push through it. And he turned up in Palm Springs and realized, no, this is, I've got to put me first here. Mm. It was, uh, I, I mean, very vulnerable probably more transparent than he even needed to be Mm -hmm. but it was refreshing ultimately it's nobody's business but him and amanda's right and darren is somebody who to in my mind 
gets the benefit of the doubt always, mm-hmm. right? He's one of the best commentators out there, one of the best coaches out there. And it seemed, it just really seemed like something's not quite right here. Now, this incident feels like ages ago, but we do have to talk about it. Naomi Osaka's first match, she loses Love 6, 4-6 to Kudermatova, who eventually reached the quarterfinals here at Indian Wells. Naomi, in the very first game of the match, faced a heckler. Somebody said, Naomi, you suck. And it clearly affected her immediately right like it it cast a pall over the entire match we had somebody over that night and weren't watching that match but we were following what was going on on twitter and when i read the tweets about that i was like oh my god here Mm. we go right we are gonna have to do this again again um and it was unusual right It, it was probably very strange to deal with for veronica Mm-hmm. For Naomi, like Naomi requested to address the crowd mid-match, which is unusual. Uh, it's unheard of. And she actually was allowed to address the crowd after the match as the losing player, which is unusual. It was just not, it was not a good scene. People say, oh my God, it's just one heckler. Like, grow up. Mm-hmm. You, you Part of being a tennis player is you have to deal with this. And without the context that Naomi gave us, Folks are going to run with that. Right. And the the dereliction of duty with some of these questions that were posed to players, other players in press, without framing the question to include this context was so annoying to mm-hmm. me. Because you get all these sound bites from players who are like thinking they're giving and granting grace to Naomi. Like, yes, I believe in you know, a player's emotional well-being, and I know she's been through some things, but, 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 but. Right. There's no but here. And a lot of, you know, some more unscrupulous people are only going to share the but. Right. On social media or in their stories. And there's no but here. So Naomi actually did preempt sort of this criticism that all tennis players are heckled Mm -hmm. in her post-match comments. So give the context here. She said, I've gotten heckled before, and it didn't really bother me, but being heckled here, I watched a video of Serena and Venus getting heckled here, and if you've never watched it, you should watch it. I don't know why, but it went into my head, and it got replayed a lot. Tennis fans know exactly what she's talking about. It's what prompted a 14-year boycott from Serena. Primarily why you hate this tournament. And, okay, if it triggers me that much a white man (laughs) naomi was a child when this happened she was probably not conscious of it but she learned about what happened at indian wells she probably read serena's words about it in her memoir and in various magazine articles she lived through serena and venus returning to indian wells she lived through serena's return which she paired with this partnership with the equal justice initiative which was first and foremost political like everything about serena's return was conscious and we can go back and forth a million times about whether or not serena should have returned or if it was a good idea or like that's none of my business but this is a moment in american sporting history that's going to be triggering to a lot of black people Mm -hmm. that's it these were two already two incredible champions americans 
They were two hours from their hometown, and they were treated like shit at Indian Wells. It was, you know, pretty terrible to watch. Why should it be a surprise that Naomi is is not only cognizant of what happened, but feels connected to it? Especially after living through the Black Lives Matter summer that she was squarely a part of in 2020. So her first major, she was booed as the winner, which coincidentally was Serena Williams was part of that match. And many people have blamed Serena for that booing, right? Or, Or the trauma that Naomi suffered during that U.S. Open final. Naomi has been criticized, mocked, set up as a punchline because of her refusal to do press at the French Open last year. And similarly to what you were saying, that players were asked about it and sort of led in a certain direction, everybody was asked about Naomi's refusal to do press. And not everybody answered well, and not everybody was given the chance to answer well. (laughs) There were a lot of reporters doing reporters' work in framing Naomi's opting out in a very specific way, Mm -hmm. in a selfish way. And I think the way that we talk about mental health and wellness also clouds this whole thing. A lot of this like mental well-being thing is viewed in a really apolitical way as you should do whatever makes you happy. And it's like it's not that. That's not what mental health is. You know, it's not just some feeling. Like there's science behind this, but the the entire way we've talked about Naomi's mental health through the French Open last year till now has sort of clouded the issue, right? That anything that happens to her or anything that she expresses is a reflection of her fragile mental health. Which people already thought of her as a fragile person before this happened. And, And then you have people like making prescriptions about what she should do to fix herself. We want there to be progress in sport, but why it's so maybe doubly difficult for progress to happen in sport is because there's this inherent cultural bias built in whereby we allow all these things to happen and take them for granted as par for the course as well this is what sports are you have to deal with these things if you are going to be successful and your ability to deal with them is what makes you a champion a large part the people who can't deal with this stuff that's why they're not champions. And <sighs> right. And in many cases that's true, right? Serena and Venus have dealt with an inordinate amount of sort of extracurricular pressure and and racism and trauma and misogyny. That someone like Roger or uh, Jimmy Connors like did not have to deal with, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that everybody who follows them has to suffer in the same way. Mm-hmm. And because somebody suffers less than what they went through, then we want to talk about it as less legitimate. No. We're talking about 20 years on. We're talking about a speedy development in public discourse around these Mm. issues. I should hope that there has been progress. Right. Is this not what we should all be hoping for that the people who come after don't have to deal with the same things. That maybe those things still exist, which we know racism does. But the fact that Naomi Osaka might not have had to have had as difficult a set of cards dealt to her doesn't... Isn't that good? 
Right, it's good, <laughs> but it also doesn't diminish her feelings about the matter. Like, you can't mm-hmm. weaponize that to then say, well, Serena and Venus had it worse. Like, what are you complaining about? I think a lot of people, myself included, they use that negative talk uh, and inflict it upon themselves too. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like, I think a lot of people who say, well, that person had it worse than you, they probably also turn that inwardly mm-hmm. and and sort of diminish their own struggles, yeah. which sucks. Like, it actually makes me sad for them. Like, I went through you this know? in my personal life, and I'm not even a professional athlete. I'm not even making millions. I'm not even doing something that I love to do. So why are you complaining? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But it, it doesn't mean that another person's suffering isn't also real. Anyway, I don't, like... I can tell you watching this and watching Naomi cry in her post-match interview made me livid. Like, it made me so angry. Because it brought back so many memories of what has happened here before and and just this sort of need to kind of pacify this crowd at Indian Wells and, and hope, hope that they're on the right side of history mm-hmm. because they weren't in 2001. Two things. You have a rule. That you do, and you try to impose that rule on me as well. That you do not tweet before going to bed. I, I try. You did not follow no. that that night, and I cussed. Yeah, you were very, you were very annoyed. I was annoyed. really mad mm-hmm. uh, because it again, it's the gaslighting that I can't deal with. It's the gaslighting about, oh, why don't you believe Nick is sincere when he reached out to that ball kid? It's the gaslighting about. Why would Naomi be impacted? Or why would she be triggered by an incident like that? She was only three years old. How would she how would she be affected by that? The thing is, like, that person knows. And they're just goading you. I said two things. The other thing, if we ever go to Indian Wells, one of the first and only things that we'll be doing the entire time we're there is sitting in that crowd and watching (laughs) and looking for how people are behaving. The, the MAGA hats? To pretend like this is no longer part of the history of this tournament, that it's now fully morphed into tennis paradise. There are no more blemishes. We have put this all behind us. Like, that's crazy to me. Like So, like, when this happens, my first re- response is, yeah, of course, like, if I were there, I would have been looking out for that as well. that would have pinged on my radar immediately and this was one of our concerns when serena went back when venus went back that it was something they personally needed to do and wanted to do and more power to them but we feared that one of the offshoots one of the net effects of it would be a whitewashing of what happened an opportunity for folks to just carte blanche say well, we are moving on from this. We have dealt with this. It's in the past. It's no longer who we are, which you don't just move on from that. It's a continual being better, you know, and continually trying to nip things in the bud to make sure that this doesn't happen again. But instead, what we have is an inclination to minimize Naomi's experience here. Using biases that we have against her from all manner of things in recent history to then undercut what she's telling us explicitly in this moment 
that was the thing that one of the things that upset <laughs> right. me most too. Like right. Naomi in she wanted to do it after the first game. She probably knew how this was gonna turn out, mm -hmm. how this was gonna be used against her. And yeah, that's unconventional. I'm not here to tell you whether it should or shouldn't have happened or been allowed to happen after that first game. That's not how tennis works. Fine. She mm -hmm. got her moment after the match. She told us. That's the end of it. Yeah. So the, don't be trying to talk about this after the fact without including that. That's the bare minimum that we can do. If you don't want to agree with it, if you don't want to think it's valid, do that on your own time. But we cannot. How many times have we talked about this on the show? That whenever black tennis players are discussed, for whatever reason, you must necessarily consider race. And this wasn't an instance of us like, oh, there they go again, trying to inject race into it when it shouldn't be there. Naomi, a black woman, told us that this is what she felt, how she saw and received what happened. And she didn't actually blame the loss on this. She continued the match. She didn't say that the heckling was racially motivated or anything. Like, she just said that the heckling triggered something for her. Mm -hmm. That was it. Like... The rest is just window dressing. The, the rest is stuff that people have added to it. And all this happened right about the same time that Jane Campion stepped in it. <laughs> <laughs> this is too much. You know what? I actually quite liked The Power of the Dog, Jane Campion's film, which she won Best Director for. Uh, that was, what, at the Critics' Choice Awards where this happened? She had won the BAFTA as well the mm. day before... I'm told that it's it's a trash Western movie, and there can be no gays in Westerns. Yeah. there. I mean, there are a lot of people who felt the film was boring, which tot totally fine. I liked it, but if you didn't like it, I can totally understand why you didn't like it. She takes down Sam, what's his name? Sam, Sam Elliott. Elliot, you know, criticized sort of the gay content of it. Said that, you know, this woman from New Zealand doesn't really know anything about the American Western. Whereas, I mean, this is 2022. I, when was the last time there was a sincere American Western? The, you know, this is one of the homegrown genres that has been exported everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's the spaghetti Westerns in the 60s. Basically, every Western since the 60s has been revisionist. So... We had bear, as I would say, we had bareback mountain. We we had brokeback mountain. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, anyway, I liked the movie, but if people didn't like it, that's okay too. As so, Sam Elliott exposes his ass. Yeah, right. He shows himself to be a complete moron. So she gets the slam dunk on him mm -hmm. on Saturday, and then on Sunday she's accepting her award, and she calls out Venus and Serena from the crowd because they're there with Will Smith, and everything's great. And then she goes back to them again and says, you are marvels, but you didn't have to compete against the men. Like I do. Like I do. Uh, and she paused for a laugh after the men, and it didn't come. So then she said, like I do. Uh, Venus's face was like, eh. face crack. <laughs> Serena clapped and, you know, laughed and whatever. What are you supposed to do in that moment? It was so weird. It was so awkward. What a self-sabotage. And it, I mean, I don't, we don't have to dunk on her because it blew up like crazy. She apologized the next day. It's just, it was like, 
one more instance of, okay, Venus and Serena have entered the mainstream, and then they have to deal with, like, this weird, awkward, condescending bullshit mm -hmm. from, like, somebody who's not, who doesn't know who they are. This, who, this, this incident, if you are hesitant to critique of white feminism, the history of white feminism being not just not inclusive, but proactively excluding black women in their movement, this is a case study. Like, this shit could be taught in schools. Right? Because she could have just celebrated the women in the room. And she, she had talked about Halle Berry. Mm -hmm. She mentioned Venus and Serena earlier. It's like, oh my God, all these women uh, doing amazing things, period. And then she had to make this bizarre joke about how they don't have to compete against the men. And, you know, if you follow sports at all... You know that women's sports are constantly pitted against men, mm -hmm. that they compete against men for money, for resources, uh, for resources, for TV time, access to press for, conference rooms, uh, for, for magazine covers, for everything, to access to practice courts, <laughs> right. to scheduling, to prize money. Mm -hmm. So even in the joke, even in making this tossed off joke, she couldn't see how they were alike. Couldn't resist the impulse she saw how to they were distance different. herself right. from them. Wild. To turn a glorious moment for herself to undercut her own success by telling a joke. That's what we're told it is. But that joke is an attack. Regardless right. Right. of the intent. It's another in centuries-long line of microaggressions that black women have to withstand every single day while they're just going about their lives. Venus and Serena are out here celebrating their father, enjoying the success of this film, mingling, mixing it up in Hollywood like they've never been able to do before. Right? This is a new experience for them too. They're having a blast. And out of nowhere, that. <laughs> And then you see pictures of her cuddling up with Venus at the after party. On the right? dance like, floor. Really uh, imposing herself physically on Venus. Uh, ingratiating herself because she knew she had fucked up. Right? Presumably, Nobody laughed. Presumably to make this right. And but then there are cameras, mm -hmm. photographs, videos, other people watching. Venus is one of a handful of black women there. If that many, right? Like it then becomes the onus on her to accept this apology, mm -hmm. right? And I don't like. I don't think it's right to assume how Venus or Serena or Isha felt. Like no, you know, they are not representative of the black experience, nope. right? They can feel however they want, but there were a lot of black women on Twitter saying, "Oh, I recognize this." Yeah, <laughs> right. Like that, I know this interaction, and that's why, right? Because yeah. They know what this is typically. Right. <laughs> you know? You well, know, these well, things just had, had me thinking of the similarities, like the parallels between Naomi, Serena, Venus, both the intentional and the casual underestimation of what they've achieved mm -hmm. and what they've been through. Because a lot of the tendency is to pit them against each other. Mm. There is the pitting... Of women against each other at a base level 
but it becomes heightened when it's successful black woman occupying the same space. Mm. Like, don't do what capital wants you to do. See, see your similarities in the struggle, not your differences. On that note, Taylor's version has come to an end. <laughs> it's it's the podcast equivalent of the 12-minute version of that song. Yeah, you know, I, I did title this episode, but I have never heard that song, never heard the original, never heard the Redux version. Do you have the desire? No. I get that's on me. I guess that's a blemish on me. My lack of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Find everything BodyServe related at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. Thank you to those who gave us a review last time. We, uh, so appreciated and we look forward to more five star reviews incoming from all over the world <laughs> till next time i always try to be the best at whatever i'm doing <laughs> and if i'm not i still tell myself i'm the best <laughs> you gotta believe it right i mean <laughs>